you know, people always ask me, like, what was the difference between Tampa and Colorado or whatever? And I just, like, going to Colorado, like, in Calgary, you're trying to make the playoffs. That was your goal, right? Our goal is to make the playoffs. In Colorado, your goal is to win the Cup. And that's what it was. That was your goal, was to win the Stanley Cup. And and it was unbelievable going there, just that we're going to win the Cup and that's anything less is unacceptable. And I just love that. And then we traded for Ray. <laughs> the first year and then we lost in seven games to Dallas and then the next year it was we're going to finish first overall so if you have a game seven it's in our building anything less is unacceptable and it was like the whole season was about winning and it was unbelievable it was just awesome and it wasn't like there was a ton of pressure it was just all about winning and everything was like win one for Ray and Ray was like don't win one for me he's like screw that you win it for yourself because my name will be right next year so that was former first rounder and 19th overall selection to the Calgary Flames and two-time Stanley Cup champion Chris Dingman. And you're listening to the Up My Hockey podcast with Jason Podolan. Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Podolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Podolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games but thought he was destined for a 1,000. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello and welcome back to the Up My Hockey Podcast with Jason Podolan. I am your host, Jason Podolan, and this is episode number 69. And today we have on uh, a special guest by the name of Chris Dingman. Chris and I, uh, born same birth year back in 76, so we saw a lot of each other uh, in the junior hockey ranks and in our draft year. You know, he, uh, Chris went 19th overall, I went, I went 31st. Uh, so we were at many of the same events and the same combines. We ended up going head-to-head in the playoffs uh, in the finals, WHL finals, uh, both of our respective last years. And, um, and then, yeah, and then saw a little bit of each other in pro. So it was great to catch up with, with Dinger, uh, a man who went on to, to uh, win two Stanley Cup champions, uh, championships, one with Colorado Avalanche and one with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, so it was surrounded by some amazing, amazing players on obviously both those teams by the likes of Martin St. Louis and Vincent LaCavalier and Brad Richards and uh, Javi Bulin and Joe Sackick and Rob Blake and, you know, Ray Bork and my goodness, right? The, the Hall of Famers go on and on and on. Uh, so super cool to catch up with him, uh, to talk about his journey, to talk about his arrival into the NHL, uh, that it wasn't, you know, a, an easy road. Uh, we, you've heard that on this podcast many times. We dig into that here a little bit today. Uh, you know, Chris being a first rounder, 19th overall, didn't get a sniff out of training camp, uh, was already been told he was kind of washed up in the media. If you can imagine that at 20 years old, uh, spent an entire season down in the minors where he wasn't getting a chance to play, was not getting an opportunity, ran into a coach that he didn't like. Um, what do you do, right? What do you do? Uh, these are the things that, that uh, the spots on the roadmap, you know, that, that athletes just aren't, aren't ready for. And, um, you know, I know a lot of listeners here are, are parents, minor hockey parents or parents of junior players. Uh, and the athletes themselves, and you never plan for adversity, right? We never think that something bad, let's say in quotes, is going to happen to us, 
but things do happen. And, um, and we talk, I talked to Chris about that in his first year there, not being able to get on the ice, a first-round draft pick, already signed this big bonus and expecting big things, and now he can barely even find a, a spot in the lineup down in the minors. Uh, you need to be prepared for these types of things. And, uh, and yeah, we chronicle his, uh, his trade and his move and, and, uh, and all these other things, and he tells a lot of great stories along the way. We do have a few technical issues. Um, I don't believe there, there was a bit of a delay. I tried to do my best to let that delay just happen. Um, so there wasn't too much back and forth, you know, banter in this one. But uh, Chris does tell some some great stories, and we run into uh, a, a, a small time, maybe a minute or two, where where I couldn't hear myself um, or him, and we had to uh, reconstruct that. So uh, bear with a little bit of the tech. There's there's not too much here. Chris is well worth listening to. Got a, got a lot of great stories, and um, and yeah, lots to learn from from his journey. So without further ado, I bring you Chris Dingman. All right, we are live for episode 69 of the Up My Hockey podcast with Chris Dingman. Chris Dinger Dingman. Um, Dinger, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. It's funny, uh, episode 69, when I went to junior, I was allowed to request three numbers, and the first one was 11, second one was 22, and the third one was 69. And Kelly McCrimmon and I had a talk about it years later, about what the <laughs> what are you thinking? I was like, I don't know, it's just have a little fun. I knew there was, you know, I knew I was going to get whatever number he was going to give me, but I thought I'd have a little fun with it. And then, then right, Bobby, right. yeah, him and Bobby Lowe's my coach, kind of gave me the lay of hand there. So kind of knew going. You were eleven, right? But yeah, twenty-two. Oh, you were twenty-two. Who at eleven? Oh God, I don't even remember. Was that Dubinsky? No, I think Dubber was. Kuchi was twenty-four. Dubber was sixteen, nineteen. Who was 11? 19, Jeff Hode. Yeah. I think Jeff Hode was 11. Gotcha. I believe. No, Mark Colsar. That's who it was. Did you ever get, uh, speaking of numbers, I never had this conversation before, did you ever get to a spot? Um, I know you played a hell of a lot more NHL games than me, but were you ever able to pick your number at the NHL level? No. <clears throat> no, I, uh, <clears throat> you know, when you go to camp and you get a number, it's different now because all the numbers are, you know, all over the place. But back in the day, it was like if you had a lower number, you had a good chance of making the team. And if you were like in the fifties or something, then you, you really had no chance. So I remember <laughs> in Calgary, I get uh, seven, and Derek Morris had fifty-three, and and we were in the hotel for like a month or two or something during the season. And so they finally call us in, a Bricky uh, PR guy or whatever he calls us in. He's like, "Yeah, you know, you guys can get places now or whatever. You know, they tell you you can move out of the hotel." So, I don't uh, know that, but I, I've heard people get to hear yeah. that sometimes. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was like, all right, yeah, great. And it was like, so, yeah, if you guys want to, if you want to change your number, you're talking to Derek, Mor- Derek Morris. He's like, you know, that's more of a training camp number, you know, a different number. We can, you know, get that. You can get a different number and look at what it's available. And he, Mo was like, nope, I made the team with this number and uh, I'm good. And I was kind of like, put my hand up a little bit, like, Hey, uh, I had seven Gary Robertson number, and I was like, "Hey, would it be possible?" And it was like, "No." I was like, "Okay, thanks," because it just seven looked weird. I have a, I'm kind of a large person, so I have a double digit number. I feel anyways to fill me right. out or fill out the back of the jersey. But yeah, that was uh, my first request, and then I got lucky when I went to Colorado. I got eleven, and then <clears throat> when I went to Tampa, they gave me eleven. I went to Carolina. Uh, there was a guy by the name of Jeff Daniels. He's still the assistant coach, I believe, and he had eleven. 
and there was no chance he was giving. I was, I didn't even ask him. They gave me 19. I was like, oh, okay, 19 could be, but yeah, it wasn't. 19 wasn't any more better for right, me. Right. It wasn't wasn't yeah, lucky. So, yeah, no choosing numbers, even in Sweden. Yeah. I got a 22, and I there's a guy when I went to Sortitalia, and I this guy wasn't giving up his number either. So I just went with 44. So. 44 sweet yeah yeah i got um in florida they gave me they gave me 17 like without again not asking me but they knew that i wore that all through junior so they gave me 17 so that was really cool and then when i got traded to toronto um a guy by the name of wendell clark was wearing 17 so i don't think uh that was going to change but they gave me seven like without asking so I, i wore seven too and uh i had no idea at the time which really i'm kind of not very happy about myself with just like the the history of the leaf so like that that number like was an iconic yeah. number in the leaf history like to get to wear that number like lanny mcdonald wore that number and like some other names and so that was actually quite a statement for them to give me that number um but i didn't like it either i, I didn't really like the seven uh, to be honest but anyways numbers are a funny thing some guys live and die by them yeah. <laughs> a lot of pressure well a lot of pressure too when you wear a number like that so yeah. I don't know. I was always a double digit. I don't know why. I just uh, I think it's because uh, I was never nowhere. Well, not that anyone really is, but Wayne Gretzky was ninety nine. Growing up at Edmonton, you know, there was Gretzky, but I liked Mark Messier because he was skilled, but he was still tough. And I like that side of it. So eleven was, you know, kind of the number. So I like the double digits. And but you right. know, back in the day, there was, you know, there was none of the high numbers there are now. And you know, especially playing in traditional, like again, Brandon. Like with Kelly McCrimmon, there was no getting 44 or 55 or any of those numbers. Right. I was like, nope, shut your mouth. This is what you're getting. <laughs> was Moose your guy? Here. Was Mark Messier your guy? Was that, was that uh, who you tried to emulate? Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, I loved him. Like Dave Semenko, too, obviously. But, uh, you know, Gretzky was a great player. I just – I like the physical side of it. I like hitting people. You know, you watch the old videos now and some of the things he did and some of the elbows, like when he elbowed Medano and stuff, like he was – he was mean, but back then you had to be, you had to protect yourself. This is the old, uh, like, Ernie Howell, like, you had to eat an elbow to, if you wanted to hit me or go through my stick. I remember Craig Ramsey, my assistant coach at Tab, would say that. He's like, I wasn't the biggest guy, Dinger, but if you were going to hit me, you had to go through this. And he'd have his stick up, you know, his old Sherwood, it was 20 pounds. And the guy was only like 150 pounds soaking wet, Rammer, but you couldn't get the puck away from him. We'd play one on one or keep away. And he was so strong, but just, you know, those back then, I just, like, I, I like the physical aspect of it, but you had to protect yourself. And Messi right. was one of those guys. He would fight, too. Like, it was, I love watching the old videos, like the Battle of Alberta and stuff. And then, like, like Messi fought Marty McSorley because McSorley was all over him. And, you know, Messi would get mad turn around and cross jack. But he'd fight him, and you would do okay for a while. But it's like, you know, why? Like if I'm a GM or I'm a coach, well, I, I don't want Mark Messi fighting Marty McSorley. I mean, that's, like, forget that. Like, yeah, I would yeah. Two, I would have had three guys going over the boards, but uh, you know, sure. I just respected. I liked that style of play that he played, and you know that he was skilled and he could he could he could hit and he could fight if need be. And he was mean too. Like I, I was lucky to, or lucky or unlucky enough to play against him. But I like hit him, and it was kind of like, oh, sorry, Mister Messi. You know, like it was one of those. And even Gretzky too. Like he was like, I scored a goal against him one time. It was my third goal of the season. I hadn't scored in three months, and. I was like, he had wanted no part of playing defense. He was in New York at the time, and I was so pumped. I scored a goal, and my old boys were like, yeah, because it's Madison Square Gardens. And I, I get a wraparound. I get on Mike Richter. I get the rebound. I go bar down, and, and I'm just like, woo, the boys are all pumped. And, you know, Messi and Gretzky couldn't give two, you know, whatever. Get back to the bench with Brian Sutter. My number seven was 
it's about effing time, Dinger. And I was like, couldn't let me enjoy it just a little, like just a little bit. You can let me. Whatever. It was a different time. It was uh, yeah. coaching's a little different now, and so is the game. So yeah, <laughs> no kidding. That. Who do you think? Who do you think is the Mark Messier? Actually, you know what? Uh, before I ask that question, do you hear that story when he was? I think he was a rookie, Messier, when he went to the went to the wrong airport. Oh yeah. Yeah, and so you got so for those listening, I, I heard I heard Mark tell this Mark like I know him Messier tell this story, uh, and it was ridiculously awesome. Shows up at the wrong airport, ends up making a call to the uh, to the you know to the team or whatever, like you know, hey, I'm at the wrong airport, and they're like, oh yeah, well that's okay, just show up, you know, wherever they're supposed to go, and. Um, and be ready. So anyway, so he goes to the right airport and the ticket is to the minors. <laughs> so he misses the team flight and he has to go to the minors. I guess he was there for like five days and then came back. But he said it was one of the biggest wake-up calls ever. I thought that was pretty, pretty, pretty classic move by the Oilers there. But who do you think, who do you think in the game today? Like, is there anyone that plays like, like Messier now? <clears throat> um, I don't know if there's anybody. Paul uh, Wilson with uh, the Capitals. He's, I mean, Mark Messier is Mark Messier, but you know, look at a guy like him. He could play on your top lines, and he's a skilled guy. He can shoot, he can pass, and he can hit, and he can fight. So, top of my head, you know, he's a guy. Lucic was, you know, he's Lucic has gotten a little older, but I think he was a guy too that could, you know, it's hard to compare. I'm just trying to think yeah. other guys, but you know, Anderson's got a little bit of that in Montreal, the bigger guy, you know. Yeah. Uh, Bit of a mean streak. You're in part of between, though, now, right? I mean, that's why they stand yeah. out like a sore thumb, those guys. Those guys are, are real valuable. And you see it now, like in the playoffs when it's heavy, you know, like it's oh. a little bit heavier. These guys are coming out of character. Some of these guys are having to hit and get hit more than they're used to. And it looks a lot different out there, the game. I, I love watching the playoffs. It's, uh, it's, oh. it's the kind of hockey I like to watch, too. Well, even the, well, just the Islanders watching them, like Tampa's, like they're a skilled team, but they have Maroon. They, they got some physical guys. And that game was awesome. Like it was great because it was just the physicality of it is, you know, I enjoy that. I really enjoy that. A lot of people don't, but I enjoy that about the playoffs where you know, talking about interference and penalties and stuff. And, you know, refs are refs. Like they're human beings. I remember like I was in Carolina at the time. And uh, you remember, remember the referee from the dub, uh, Mike has in France and he, oh, of course. Yeah. So has he, so he, he, he cost us game seven in tri city <laughs> Speaking of refs making mistakes. We scored in overtime. I got to go back there. We score in overtime against tri cities battle back from three, one, the puck Gillum, Sean Gillum skates. I pissed. I passed the puck to Gilly. Gilly shoots it from the point, goes off their defenseman in front into the net. Hasn't frat says John Sergia kicked it in somehow on the way to the net denies the goal. Terry Ryan scores seven minutes later and uh, we're out of the playoffs. So anyways, I definitely remember hasn't frats and Terry, Terry and I have had that conversation a few times, but anyways, yeah. your turn with hasn't frats. <coughs> he didn't, I guess he didn't screw me over. Cost me that I know of anyways, but I was, I was with my wife and we had PF Changs. We were sitting at the bar and it was after a game and, you know, just having a, a few drinks and just, you know, eating, having uh, what did I like there, the bang, bang shrimp, I think it was. It was unbelievable. Like, I had to eat every time. Anyways, so my wife and I are sitting there, and, uh, like, I look over, and it's Mike Hasselcraft. And he's like, Dinger. And I said, yeah. He goes, oh, how's he? And I was like, oh, hey. So, anyways, <clears throat> we start talking for a couple hours, and I think he's drinking Diet Cokes or Cokes, and he's drinking, you know, something a little harder with a splash of, and I'm just having my Coors Lights or Bud Light Drops or whatever. And we were talking, he was telling stories and he was telling me the story. And I just, I always tell the story because I just enjoy it so much. And he's like, you remember that game? And he was against Moose Jar Medicine Hat. He's like, you remember that game? And I was like, I don't know, not really. Like, I'm, it's like with my brain and concussions. 
like I can remember certain things and then other things I can't. And then, you know, people say something, I go, oh, okay, I remember that now. But he was telling the story about there was this guy and he started like, you know, a bunch of crap, right? In the game, a bunch of shit or whatever. And the guy was like, so then it was like line brawl, line brawl, you know, back in the day, like the skilled guys would play the skilled guys and the heavyweights for the most part, right? And he's like, so this guy that starts everything, and he's like, as a ref, he goes, I understand. You get mad, you can tell me that off, tell me I suck, whatever. But he's like, there's two words you can't call. There's two C words, and I'm not going to say them, but I'm pretty sure you could. we can all figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, you call me that, like, you're gone. Either not, you, you can tell me to go F myself, whatever. He's like, I, I get it. You're passionate. You guys are, you know, in the heat of the moment. But he's like, so this game, so this guy that started everything, like every whistle, he's calling me a, uh, you know what, sucker, uh, you know, blah blah blah, the, you know, blank this, blank that. And he, he said, he goes, he said, he said to the guy, he goes, you can call me a, you know what, as many times as you want. He's like, I'm not kicking you out. You're gonna answer the bell because you started all this. So the guy, every this was the guy that started all this bullshit, all the brawls and stuff, hadn't fought yet. And he's like, you're answering the bell. I'm not kicking. I'm not getting. Like his point was, I'm not gonna give you the easy way out. So the guy was like just F-bombing him every whistle, calling him, you know, the C-word, the C-word. He's like, you can call me out all you want. I'm not kicking you out because the guy wanted, you know, two and a ten. <laughs> right. And he just wanted to get kicked out so he didn't have to fight. And he's like, no, you're answering the bell. And I still remember that to this day because, you know, when we were in Tampa too, like Koharski was there and, you know, Torts hated him for a uh, call. And Sarge, Corey Sarge, Sarge, he hated him too. But, you know, like referees are – they're human beings. They make mistakes. I mean – everyone's on them like i you know we're all passionate or whatever but they know when they like i've talked to a few guys they know when they make a mistake and they'll try and make up for it, whether it's right or wrong you know we watch games and you know it's like you remember jeff audrey tell me like if we had three power plays he's like dude don't touch anybody because they're looking to call something so don't even put a stick on anybody and he wouldn't because they were you know you just naturally they would and then remember dave anderchuk would say too like they have six marbles in each pocket the officials and they call a penalty on one side they pull it out okay and then they pull one out of the other side or they pull two out. And he's like, it's usually about 6'6 six, six or 6'5. Six, and, you know, because they really don't want to dis- like determine games for the most part. Like, right. they don't want to. There's the odd guy. I mean, there's one or two I'm not going to say. But, you know, most of them, they just they want to be part of the game and not be a storyline. I think it would be the best part. But yeah. I just go back to those couple stories about that Hazenfrod story. It was a, you can call me or whatever, no matter. I'm not kicking <laughs> you out. I'm not kicking you out. And I just – I love that because there was that accountability where, you know, there's not as much as that anymore where, you know, you can run off and say this and say that. And, you know, back then you, you get your head taken off or someone would, you know, someone would try, you'd have to fight and you'd have to take a beating or you'd change the way you played. So I just really yeah. enjoyed that story as far as appreciating. Sorry. He uh, screwed you over. <laughs> I know. I'll never forget. I'll never forget it, but that's life. That's the way she goes. Actually, you have another good, good referee from the dub, Tom Cowell. I don't even remember that name. Oh, yeah. He refed in the, in the NHL forever. Yeah. Um, excuse me. Uh, he, I had him on as a guest and it was actually one of my favorite interviews. Cause like to hear the game from, from their perspective, right. And again, their preparation and their approach and, and, and how they consider themselves as a team. Um, yeah. You know, with the, the, the four, the three or four of them on the ice, um, it was really quite compelling. And then it was also, quite sad too uh, for the parents and players out there listening like and how hard it is to bring new refs into the game because of how they're treated you mean yeah. at such a young level right like um 
And again, I think you said it, you know, I mean, 99% of them are just trying to do their best. They don't want to be the star of the show, you know, and, and it is what it is. You're going to see mistakes. And I think there's a little lack of empathy um, in, in that scenario, especially when we're dealing at the youth hockey hockey levels. But uh, yeah, a good episode for anyone who uh, is interested in that, because I think it, it does develop a little bit of empathy and a little bit of understanding that, uh, you know, we need these guys, right, for the game to, to be great. And we need these guys for the game to grow. And if, and if we can't attract young referees, um, that says something about the culture uh, with what with what we're creating. So anyways, neither here nor there. Uh, I want to talk about the Cups. I want to talk about Brandon um, because that was a fun time. And when we crossed paths uh, in, in that time, even though you were in the East and my gosh, I'm, I'm sure that West trip must have I don't know. Did you guys like look on the West trip as like something like that was looked forward to? Like it was always interesting for us from the West, but it was, I mean, obviously way different cities coming out East, yeah. um, you know, and, and that whole environment was not necessarily a, a, a huge highlight every year. Did you guys like look forward to coming West or was it a little bit of drudgery too? Oh no, you guys were coddled out West. You guys had the easy bus trips and you had the nice oh, arenas, and you had the, oh yeah, you guys were called weird. That was our perception, anyways. Like, you guys were like, you know, you had an hour, two hour bus ride, and whatever, and it was a piece of cake. And then us, you know, like in Brandon, your closest trip was like three and a half hours in Regina or something. So, you know, we felt like we were the ones that paid our dues. Like, I remember when people say, "Oh my God, you played hockey, you played junior, it was easy." You know, how hard was it? I'm like, try ride a bus for eight hours. You stop at a rink in the middle of nowhere. And you eat roast beef and potatoes or something, or mashed potatoes, and the people, the nicest people, and it's ready for you, just small-town people. Then you get back on the bus, and then you get to the arena. And then if, like, my first year, I, I sat in a seat, and my seatmate was Darren Drager. So Dregs, you know, the insider, Dregs was our radio guy. And the poor guy, poor bastard, he's, like, he's stuffed up against the wind, like, against the window because he's got to sit next to me as a rookie at 6'3", 226 or whatever. <laughs> and he always told me, he's like, oh, my God, I had no room. And I'm, like, trying to sleep. And I'm sitting there because you didn't get a bunk. We had that old bus, and they had the bunks in the back. And unless there wasn't a lot of veterans, you didn't get a bunk till your second year and whatever. So, anyways, um, you know, we considered we paid our dues. And, uh, well, the West Coast trip, we'd get the T-shirts made up, and it was a big deal. You know, going to Portland and stuff, 16,000 people. And so I remember, like, the one trip – I was hurt. I think my 17-year-old year, I was hurt. I had a knee injury or something. or I had a couple bad quad conditions, but so I didn't make the trip. But I remember, like, it was my third third year or fourth year. And I, I don't remember which one, but I remember we go to Seattle, and we played in the smaller barn. Remember, like, the tiny one? Right? Yeah, the scope box, top. man. Oh, my God. And something happened. Like, so we get in a brawl, and I think I had, like, knocked out, like, a couple guys. And then the ref tackles me and someone throws a fish at me. Like, I'm like my face on the ice and the fish, like, you know, lands like right next to my face. And I'm like, pick it up and swing it. I'm skating off. There's video of it. I'm skating off the ice and I'm giving the double bird to the, to the fans, which I'm not very proud of, but I was kind of passionate. Let's say passionate about that. <laughs> and no suspension or nothing. Like now you just, you can't do that stuff, but <laughs> it's so absurd, but it's kind of funny. So then, you know, we have a good trip. I think that trip we were, we played what seven games or something, uh, 13 days. And so the last were five and one, I think, or something like that. We had, if you we looked at it, if you could go 500, it was a good trip, like you know what I mean, because you go out and like you know, whatever, it's a long bus ride. But so the rule was with Bobby Lowe's is if you lost, there's no movies after the game, so that was our incentive. So yeah. we're five and one, and our last game is in Portland, and it's rocking like 16,000, you know, like they come out to. It was a symphony. It was symphony of destruction, right? Wasn't it? Probably. Yeah, I don't remember. But yeah. 
Oh, place is rocking. And so I scored the first goal. And we're like, we're all right, one nothing. Well, they pumped 10 straight on us. And like, we're at the end of the trip. And by the time it's 4 1 or something, I'm like, I, I get in a fight. And it's 5 1. So I get another fight. I'm just trying to get kicked out because I'm like, just done, right? Get some pims. And I was mad. So, anyways, lose 10 1. And, you know, our rule is no movies after loss. But we're thinking, okay. Hey, Lozy, we watch a movie. He's like, no, F off. So we think, okay, so we got to go to bed, right? But then we got to wake up the next day because it's a 27-hour bus ride back. So we think, you know, maybe the next day we can watch the movies. We're like, okay, who's going to ask him? Hey, Lozy, can we watch movies? And he's like, F off, no. So we went 27 hours. We stopped in, uh, I think it was like Medicine Hat or something. We, they had the they had the veal cutlets with the uh, squiggly yeah. fries with the gravy. Oh, my God, so good. So we literally got off the bus. We ate. We got three hotel rooms so guys could shower. The bus would shower first. You had a five minute shower because it just stunk so bad. Like after 13 days on the road. So yeah, that was. We looked at the West Coast trip as like it was cool because you got to see these big arenas and you right. know, the U.S. cities and go shopping and stuff. And but uh, yeah, we consider ourselves the gritty ones, and you guys were like the soft ones out west because you know <laughs> you get the nice buildings and. You know, the the like the travel wasn't that far, so but yeah, we right. it was a fun trip. We had the t-shirts made. I remember like the one year, like Bobby Brown. I don't know if you remember that name. We nicknamed him the Greasy Squirrel after that trip because he had the bottom bunk, and literally everyone would throw their garbage on the ground. Or not everyone, but a lot of guys. So there was like by the end of the trip, there was like Ziploc bags, half-eaten sandwiches, and like just all in his bunk. And it was just like, oh, he'd roll out of there, and then, like, hey, how you doing? He just like just. You know what I mean? Just like just like greasy. <laughs> had the same uh, tank top on the whole trip. I think or we had two. They looked the same. So yeah, it was a it was a fun bonding experience for us. Or that's way we no, looked at it. for sure, days. for sure. I mean, there's there's something to be said for that time on the bus. You know, and uh, you know the guys in the OHL definitely definitely don't experience that. You know, like like we did. Um, you know, you mentioned, I mean, I totally hear what you're saying. We did have like our, our, our buildings out West. I mean, it was like, you're playing pro a lot of times, yeah. especially on the weekends, right? You mean 15, 16, 17,000 people. Um, but our travel wasn't good. I mean, we, our closest trip was two and a half hours to try. And then it was Seattle, which was five and a half or whatever. It was our second closest yeah. in Spokane. Um, and as you know, like, I mean, and everyone listening, that was, you know, those are day trips back in the day, right? I mean, you're going, you're leaving after school or I mean, you go to school in the morning, go leave and then come back that night and supposed to go to school the next day. And, um, like I say, when you're a rookie and you're up at the front there with, uh, you know, double breasted, you're not, you're not having an easy time sleeping or getting comfy. Uh, and that's funny. You guys stopped in medicine. That's exactly what we did. Cause Brandon was always at the end of our trip. So we would leave from Brandon for the, for whatever it was. Yeah. Like the 20, 24 or 21 hours or 26 hour trip home and we'd stop in medicine hat that'd be the one time we'd get off the bus uh to eat and then get back on and i remember by by like rolling into spokane <laughs> like guys were just delirious you're just dumb i mean you're yeah. just dumb you're emotional like i remember hugh hamilton like seriously breaking down into tears one one trip coming back like over some like joke that i thought was funny but it wasn't at the time because we were on the bus for 27 hours straight after two weeks in the road so yeah, anyway, some crazy stuff. But yeah, you, I mean, you had, maybe let's talk about that. Maybe, instead of starting at your 16-year-old, maybe we'll start in that draft year because, um, you know, those of those who aren't familiar with you, uh, you're a first rounder, 19th overall in that 94 draft. Um, and that is playing 45 games uh, <coughs> and we're injured. I mean, you had a good 45 games, 21 goals, you know, 41 points, 77 pims. Uh, how was that year for you? How did you deal with whatever the injury was? Um, 
and yeah, was that a was that a big pain in your butt? Were you were you freaking out because you were injured, or how did that all go for you? Um, I don't remember too much to be honest. Uh, like I kept getting bad quad contusions. I had, like the pants we had, they kept moving. So every time I was a bigger guy, and it felt like every time I hit somebody, I just run guys as hard as I could. There wasn't like angling or any of that. Um, plus, Kelly <laughs> McCrimmon, he'd say his big thing was, "Well, dang, you couldn't turn." And then. Oh, I think you put yourself on mute because I can't hear you now. I can't hear you. Yeah, there you go. Sorry. Yeah. Um, the central scaling on me was uh, when I turned, I took out the first five rows, which I thought was a little mean, but whatever. <laughs> Anyways, I kept getting these big, these really bad quad contusions. And um, so I, I was missing games. I come back and it really, like, I couldn't even bend my knee. And so I don't, I don't remember much about the draft year. And like, it was just like it was projected to be a second round or maybe something like that. And um, I just remember talking to Calgary. And I did one, uh, like a psych eval with him. And I did like, I was looking at these paint blotches and stuff. And then I was doing this A1, B2, C3, like a zigzag thing. And now you do it and then you put the headphones on. And the headphones were telling you to do something different. So I'd started twice and I stopped. I said, what do you want me to do? Listen to the headphones or do the A1, B2, C3? And they're like, do the A1, the headphones are to distract you. I was like, okay. So then they ask you all these different questions and stuff I got. And so the feedback was, they said, when you did that A1, B2, it took you the third time when you finally did it, but it was the fastest time out of anyone we tested. I was like, okay, cool. Thanks. And then they like, when they're doing the, the, the paint blotches and stuff, like I was going into specific detail about, you know, it's just like, it's just an ink stain. Just, he's like, well, here's what someone else said. This is a circle and this is a triangle or something like that. And I'm like, I see like a little house over here and it looks like a little chief and then this and that. So it was interesting to get the feedback, but you know, I didn't really know. But anyway, so after the draft, you know, I get drafted by Calgary, and I, I found out after that Dallas had had me picked, and that if Calgary would have picked me, Dallas would have picked me 20th. Um, but anyways, I was talking to the head scout at the time, Tom Thompson and Doug Reisbaugh, great people. And Tom Thompson was, like, very funny about it. He goes, we talked to you that one time, and he said, we didn't want anyone to know that we were interested in you, so we didn't talk to you yet. And I was like, yeah, I didn't know. Like, you guys, like, I remember flying out to Quebec City, Sherry Bassett, we went for dinner and stuff, and, you know, New Jersey, we're on the treadmill doing all the stuff, doing the testing. And but they just uh, during the season, I don't really remember that much. I just remember I started playing right wing and I never really played right wing. And, and it was funny. So the Tom Thompson said, he goes, you know, yeah, you're injured. And he goes, you came back and you're playing right wing. And he goes, you're total dog, you know what, dog crap. And he's like, it was perfect because we knew we wanted you. And we already knew what, you know, we, what we thought. And he's like, and you look like crap. So he's like, it was perfect for us. And it was interesting, <laughs> you know, like at the time I was kind of struggling a little bit because I never really played my off wing. I'd always played center, left wing, but left wing primarily, obviously, in the Western League. And, but the way they were looking at it is that, you know, they kind of knew I was their guy, I guess. And, you know, we don't, we don't know how things turn out later on in life or whatever. But it was interesting that, you know, yeah. I was struggling and they he loved it because – you know, they wanted me, so it's like it's perfect because right. no one else really was like, yeah, because, you, you you know, you're struggling so bad. So, yeah, I didn't right. really know much other than that, so, you know, other than going in the draft with Donnie Mean and, you know, here's where we're kind of projecting you. But you just – it was all kind of a blur, you know, like you just – you do some well, how was that, though? I mean, it, it, it sounds just like playing... from, from earlier you said uh, your expectation maybe was uh, around second round and then you end up going 19th. Like was that was that what you were expecting? Like it must have been pretty euphoric if to hear your name called at 19th. <clears throat> yeah, it was great. Um, I don't really, like, you know, they just like, here's where you kind of don't be disappointed if you don't get taken in the first round. I was like, oh, sure, it's great, no matter what. Like, 
you know, but I just remember the, the, you know, you do the interviews at the draft. So we were, it was in Hartford, which was like Hartford was a ghost town downtown. Oh my and, gosh. Uh, it was so dead. Yeah, I remember there. doing was... the interviews and stuff. Oh uh, yeah. So we're doing the interviews and I remember doing an interview with Paul Holmgren and Paul Holmgren like shook my hand and it was literally like he had another knuckle tied on to my hand. So like he shook my hand, he almost crushed my hand. And I was like, Oh my God, he had the crew cut and he was still like muscular. He's like, hi, hi, Chris. And I was like, hi, Mr. Holmgren. Like, nice to meet you, whatever. And at the, all everyone wanted to ask me about was me and Belak fighting. And that was like the big thing. So he fought Belak a few times. I was like, yeah. And they're like, oh, how'd that go? And I said, well, I don't know. I think it went okay. You know, like who won? And I said, well, I don't know if you consider anybody really winning those ones. They were, and I just remember the one fight, you know, Beeler, God rest his soul. But I remember the one fight Saskatoon where we the second fight, my buddies had driven eight hours to watch me play and, I made it about five minutes into the game, and I remember, like, he cut me for six, and then I broke his nose, and I got up, and everyone was cheering. And I remember pointing because I was bleeding everywhere, and we had talked about it at the draft, Beeler. So, you know, Beeler and Warner and Warnsey, a bunch of the guys. So I remember talking to Beeler like, after. He's like, you you know, he hit me with that hammer fist and broke my nose. I Because he almost knocked me out. He hit me. He switched to lefts, and I was like, whoa, it took a couple, went back. And, but it was interesting. All he wanted to talk about was our fights. Like, oh, how's the fights with Beeler? And, you know, how and I was like, who won? I said, well, I won one of them for sure. The other one, maybe. And I said, the other ones, you know, I didn't get the crap kicked out of me. So I considered that a victory. So it, they just right. wanted to hear your responses, I, know, right? I guess. But it was intimidating as hell. Like, just you're going into these different suites, hotel rooms, and, like, guys you grew up watching. And you got to go sit down. You're in your tip-top tailor suit and your ugly tie, your one or two ties you had from junior that was, like, flower pastel or something and just intimidating <laughs> like just oh my god I, I don't know how i did it like i don't know how i made it through without like peeing my pants or something because it was just some of those guys were just like because some of them would say hi and then they just sit there and then you like and they was all then you hear these things after oh they're, they're testing you and i don't know testing you for but how you respond or how you whatever is just yeah it was yeah. it was fun it was it was a little scary it was fun and but when it was over i was like whew, thank god I got that's over with. Hey there, just want to let you know about everything Up My Hockey. Uh, this podcast goes live on the Up My Hockey parent group uh, on Facebook. It's a private group where you can request access. Uh, if you are a parent supporting big dreams of your athlete, and that's where you get to hear me talk about mindset and the intangibles required to be the best on the ice and how you can support your player off the ice. So that's a great place uh, to sign up and to, and to listen into the podcast. You can also subscribe to my channel on YouTube, which is Up My Hockey with Jason Podolan. I usually stream the, the podcast episodes live there. I also place a lot of my video content on YouTube uh, for access. So um, definitely trying to grow that channel as well. So if you want to subscribe to myself on YouTube, that would be a, uh, a thank you to me and you'll get all the latest content from me um, as it pertains to the hockey world and, uh, and playing our best uh, on the ice. Uh, other than that, upmyhockey.com, www.upmyhockey.com. That's if you're a coach or, uh, or a manager or an organization that would like to work with me directly with your players or with your coaches. Uh, that's where you can find out about my services and about how to reach out. So those are the great greatest places to follow me. Up My Hockey uh, on Facebook, the parent group. Uh, Up My Hockey on YouTube. And also www.upmyhockey um, for my website. Now back to the episode with Chris Dingman. 
Yeah, no, good for you. Yeah, that was cool. Um, same experience for me. And I, I, I find that now looking back as a 45-year-old guy, I knew it. I mean, you and me and I had Barnett. Like these were like big name agents um, and still big, big hitters in the game. Like the preparation for that was like zero um, that I remember, you know, as far as like the meetings were concerned. It's like, yeah, you're going to go meet with these guys. But like that was essentially your introduction. And then it was like fed to the wolves, right? You're an 18 year old yep. young man sitting in front of, you know, sometimes a room full of uh, of men. Right. Sometimes, sometimes less, sometimes more. But uh you I mean I thought I handled I thought I handled it all right too, but I mean, geez, it was it was sink or swim there though, right? I mean, it was an intimidating environment, and and some guys were nice, some guys weren't, some guys really wanted to put you on the spot, and I just found it, I found that now looking back, like if I was an agent, I would have those guys, I would have those guys a little more prepared uh, and and a little more ready for what to expect. The worst, worst, worst than that was the, you know, we got flown, like we get flown out to a couple different cities, so we had to. Quebec City when they were still in the league, and then uh, New Jersey and a couple other places. And I remember, like, we're done the season, but you're still training. But like, we go to Jersey and we got to do a, the treadmill test in the bench press. And so the the Russian guys are killing it on the treadmill. Us Western League guys, we'd be done. Like that year, I think we lost in the first round or second round. But we've been done for a month and a half, two months, and I was playing like slow pitch with my billets and. So you're working out, but we're like trying to stay on this treadmill, like bench press, no problem. But so you're doing this testing, and then you're going to these cities, and they take you. I remember like Quebec, we were going out with Sherry Basson, where we go to this like great restaurant, and then we go to the bar after the Dago Bear, I think it was, or something. And all I had to say was "Parlez anglais," and then like we like just sour, and I, I didn't know any French, and but like <laughs> kind of underage, and you could go out and have beers, and it was a different experience. But that was almost it was really cool, but it was really intimidating too because you fly in. And then they pick you up at the airport or whatever, and then you go to the hotel, and then you go do your physical testing and your meeting or whatever. So it was kind of cool, but really scary. That part, that part of it was, I don't know, maybe a little more intimidating for me. The draft was this year. Oh, here you go. Do talk to this guy, and you just try and answer as honestly as possible. And yeah, yeah try not to have Paul Holmgren and crush your hand in half. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh. Um, so our both our last years, uh, we crossed paths in junior and in the WHL final. Uh, you guys had a heck of a team that year, as did we. I think you were, you guys were ranked in the top five in the CHL, and we were ranked first at the end of the season. And uh, yeah. and yeah, so our paths collide. You guys ended up, I think, beating us in five there. Uh, what is your what is your recollection? You've, you've mentioned Bobby Brown. I do remember Bobby Brown because he won he won the MVP of the playoffs that year for you guys. Um, Lay- Layman was was playing really well too, and then you guys went and really pissed me off by not doing well in the Memorial Cup and made us look even worse. But um, uh, what do you remember from that from that run? And was that was that ended up being kind of the highlight of your junior career and a great way to finish it off? Um, yeah, I just remember like being the captain. I took a lot of pride in that. And I had a knee injury that I was playing with. And this scout from Calgary came to watch. He's like, oh, how are you feeling? I said, well, my back kind of hurts. He's like, anything else? So I'm like, well, my knee too. If I sit too long. So it was during the All-Star break. He um, he flew me out to uh, uh, out to Calgary. And I ended up having surgery the next day. And I was struggling at the time. And Kelly was, like, thinking of trading me maybe. So he's like, he gave me the talk. And I came back. And then I was playing really well. And. You know, but I took pride in being the captain, and uh, you know, you guys had uh, had a great team. I remember that one defenseman. Uh, who was it? He was all over me. I fought him a couple times. He was wasn't as big as me, but I just 
like just would hit him with everything I had, but he was just all over me the whole time. And, you know, I just remember like the bus ride out, like after we won, it's like 18 hours, I think back to Brandon. And uh, so we had, we had beers on the bus and we were like, Kelly let us have beers. So we have some beers and we go to sleep. We wake up the next day and we stopped in like Regina or something. I said, Hey, Krim, can we get some beers? And he's like, well, I'm not buying beers. I said, well, I had signed or had my card deal or something. So I had a credit card. And I said, well, like, am I allowed to buy beers? He's like, well, I can't stop you if you want to do that. And I was like, okay. So I come wheeling back. I got a couple of flats and, you know, junior, I felt like, you know, it was awesome. And, you know, we came back and we, Keystone Center, we got back. There was a bunch of fans, like a thousand fans greeting us. And it was great. So I just remember that. And then, you know, the Memorial Cup was, uh, you know, we, I don't know if we had a Granby. We, he was Granby. They had LaRock and all, they traded for all these players. And, you know, I were, uh, I remember we playing, it was in Peterborough. And this is, yeah, you're sour about it. I'm sour about it too, because we're up three nothing against Peterborough in Peterborough in the semifinals. And we had like eight straight penalties called against us. And we ended up losing like four, three, I think it was, or something. And I went over the, I'm the captain. I went over the rotation. I was like, listen, man, like, what are you calling there kind of thing? He goes, oh, too many technical or whatever. And I heard the story after. So Kelly McCrimmon, he goes in the press box. He goes and grabs the head of officiating. He's got him by the throat, like, has him up against the wall, like, you know, give them the whatever, because they wanted Peterborough to be, you know, in the finals because they were the host. Whether they did or not, but, you know, who knows? But you know, we're up in control of the game, and it was pretty lopsided to call. So it was pretty. I remember that was pretty disappointing in that sense. That you know, we should have won that game, but you know, officials or not, you know, we still lost, and you know, whatever. And then uh, you know, it was like like my last year, and then I get a call like that night. Hey, we want you to go to St. John. I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, we want to go to St. John. Flames are still playing. So I remember going to St. John, and Jerome was supposed to go, but he had a back injury or something. I really didn't want to go. I was like, so last year, junior, I was a captain. I just want to wrap this up. Like, well, they want you to go. Like, I have Donnie Meehan, and Donnie Meehan had Jerome, too. And I'm like, well, Iggy didn't have to go. Why do I have to go? Like, that's kind of how I felt. Maybe not the best life choice at the time, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> but Jerome had played in Calgary with in the, the NHL team you know, the, with the flames, but, and Jerome, I'm not saying anything bad about Jerome. Like, we already know Iggy's one of the best guys ever. And one of the greatest players, and whatever. But anyways, I just wanted to kind of wrap up my junior career. And so anyways, I, what I remember about that is then I got, I got to go to the minors in St. John. I got my beard already and, and we don't play a game for like 10 days. So the, I'm in a rush to get there and all we do is practice. And then we, we went to a Red Sox game because I think we we're playing Portland or something. And then we took a bus and we got hammered and we went to a Red Sox game. So we're like, spent the first two days there. I was like hammered. We're like, didn't, because it was weird. The minors was weird like that. You'd only play on the weekends or something. So we played like two games. They said you just played two games and we had like four days without any games. So they go there and, you know, whatever, go to the, go to the baseball game. And then I ended up playing one game and went back home and then or went back to junior. And then all the guys were pretty much gone by then. So that was a little disappointing in that sense. And then packed myself right. up and, Went back to Edmonton and continued on. So yeah, that was kind of what I remembered about that. I just took I took a lot of pride in the year, and uh, you know it, that was the second Memorial Cup we'd gone to. We went to the one the year before because Kamloops was the uh, host team, and we lost them in the uh, in the league championship. So we went and we lost in the semifinals that year too. We lost two to one to uh, I think it was the Junior Red Wings. We shot them like 42-21. Their goalie was unbelievable, and. We were playing. Brian Elder was our seventeen-year-old goalie at the time, and so yeah, I was you know two years in a row losing the semifinals. But uh, I wouldn't trade it for you know at the time it would have been great to win a Memorial Cup. But 
I wouldn't trade it for the ones I actually won later in my career. So, but at the time, hugely disappointing and, you know, sure. sour grapes or, you know, fill the wall, I guess would be the best. I hear you, man. Yeah. I really wanted to be there. That was a, that was a really fun way. I mean, for us personally to finish, you know, I mean, obviously you get into the cup, like you couldn't imagine a better way. And we had a really big run there. Obviously you got stopped by you guys, but that was the best hockey. I think I might've ever been playing in my career. It looks like you had a good playoff there as well. You know, just yeah. scoring goals, having fun. I remember hitting a post against L- Laner. We came back from Brandon. I think it was 1-1. We won a game in overtime there. We came back, um, and uh, and I was just rolling. And and then I hit a post on a shorthanded breakaway against L- Lehman, and then I never scored at home. I never scored, like, the next three games. And that was uh, – we ended up – you guys won all three in Spokane, which was, like, so crazy. And uh, like I said, and then yeah. off you went. Um, and then same thing. I, I ended up getting called up. That was the year I got called up to Florida. So Florida, that was the year Florida went to the uh, finals. Yeah. So I was supposed to play the first yeah. game there uh, when I got in. Ray Shepard was hurt. That never worked out. And then uh, and then I was a black ace all the way to the final. So that was like what a crazy year. And that was also the year of the World Junior. So like that was like the busiest year of like my hockey life. Like you know, a World Junior Championship, all the league final. Um, Stanley Cup final, like as, as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old, it's like, holy shit, this is a lot. Um, let's Staying talk about the first Florida. Yeah, you're not going to skate in Florida. What's that? I said, no, you're a 19-year-old kid and you're skating in Florida. Like, what am I doing here? Yeah, you go exactly. to the beach, work on your tan after practice. <laughs> that's, that's, that is what we were doing. We were we were practicing, and then we were hitting the beach, and like, oh my gosh, it was definitely two different existences. Like for the Black Aces and those guys that were actually in the trenches every game, like they were beat up, we were tanned, we were having a blast. We were, uh, you know, it was it was definitely a different existence. But um, you mentioned your your first, your, your, I mean, you dipped your toe in the water there, pro uh, with St. John, then you went back. Uh, were you? Were you hope? I mean, obviously, you were hoping to make the team um, your first year pro there, like meaning the big club, the the the, the Flames. Was that your was that your expectation? Or was it a letdown to, to, to go down to to the to the minors, or what, what was that experience like for you? <clears throat> yeah, it was a big letdown to be honest, because um, it was literally like the last cut as an 18, 19 year old, and I remember as a nineteen year old, I wanted to go back to junior. I was talking to Kelly. I said, they, "Kelly's like, if they told you anything, I said, no, I'm just in the hotel." And you know, they weren't sure they were maybe going to keep me. And, and I was trying to talk to Kelly. If they, you know, Kelly McCrimmon, who's my GM and junior at the time, uh, and Brandon, I'm like, have they talked to you? It was like, oh. And then, like, you know, then he, what happened is everybody got fired. So Risebrow, Doug Risebrow, Tom Thompson, all the guys that draft me, they get fired. New coach, whatever. And I played junior in my like anywhere from like 228 to 234. But at 234, I was like 8% body fat. You know, I started like 12% every year as you learn more about training, diet, nutrition. Um, you know, every year I decreased my body fat. So at 234 was a good 234. And I just remember going in my 20-year-old, in my first year pro, and it was like, this is my last chance. So in the newspaper, it was like Dingman's last chance. I'm like, I haven't even played, I played one game pro basically. Like I haven't even played pro, but those are the headlines. And I was actually, you're in the midst of moving right now or like, cause we need another bedroom cause we had the baby and stuff. And I was looking at old articles and it was like, you know, Dingman's last, like last chance and struggling. And, you know, I remember like, I'm like, I haven't even played a game pro. Like it, it, you're, this is it. But anyway, so they asked me, can you come into camp under two thirty? So, okay. So I'd see a nutritionist and uh, go on a diet. I come into camp at like two twenty seven, and first cut. Bye-bye. So I go to the minors and, 
Paul Baxter's the coach, and I'm not a big fan of him. I don't want to get into that too much. But so I lead the team in preseason scoring, and then everyone else comes down, like Clark Wilm and all those guys. Ian Gordon was our goalie, a bunch of West Lakers. And I barely play the whole year. I get him a first round pick, and and Paul Baxter at the end of the year, I remember him saying to my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, you know, who I've been with forever, he was like, Yeah, it was the best thing for him. You know, I needed to be hard on him. I'm like, you can be hard on me, but like I didn't play. Like I barely, you know, barely played. And then, you know, it was, <clears throat> you always knew when, I don't know what your experience was, but you always knew when the player personnel guy was in town because all of a sudden I'm on the second line and I'm playing. And it's like, I'm talking to him, like, what's going on? I'm like, I don't play. Like, it doesn't matter what I do. And I was never a whiner. And, you know, I was always a guy that worked hard and, you know, showed up early and, you know, my whole career, I had, uh, you know, go on the ice early, shoot on the goalie, stay after and whatever, and just didn't play. And, you know, I was like, so it was really frustrating. And I remember calling Kelly. I'm like, like, I want to go, like, I even called Donnie Meehan. I'm like, I want to go back to junior. He's like, well, I don't want to do that. I'm like, I'm not playing. I'd rather go back and play because I just wasn't playing. So that first year was, <clears throat> like, really disappointing. Like, we had fun. Obviously, it was the minors and whatever. But it was really disappointing. And, uh, and then Brian Sutter got the job. And I remember him calling me in the summer. And he said, hey, I watched you play, Ding you know, Dinger. I watched you play junior. And, you know, you could score. You could hit. You could fight. Like, basically, what's it going to take for you to make this team? And I remember saying to him, like, when you show up at camp and you're with a guy from the East Coast and a guy from Junior, nothing against that, but, like, you kind of know where you're at, right? The treaty camp numbers, too, right? If you have number 72, it's different now, but back then, you know, if you had 72, you're not a very good chance you're making the team. So, you know, when you show up at camp, because year before, Jerome had, you know, he'd been traded for Joe Newendike and, you know, Iggy had played with, you know, he's playing with Fleury and Castles, who were their top guys, kind of. And, you know, Jerome deserved to make the team. Like, don't, don't misinterpret what I'm saying at all, but you know, you're putting him on in a position to succeed with, you know, he's a great player and he's a good young player and he'd played the playoff games of those guys, you know? So that was kind of like what I said to him, like when you show up at camp and you know, you kind of know where you're at basically. So he's like, okay, we'll come to camp in shape. So then I, next year talking to Brian Sutter, you know, I, I came to camp, I was in the top five or seven in conditioning and testing and <clears throat> I was playing a flurry of castles and or Gimla in all the games. So, now, I think in eight games, I had four goals, four assists, and six fights, and make the team. And you know, as I was telling you earlier, and then we get you know two months. It was like two months later, you know, you guys could get a place and whatever. Do I have to keep number seven? Yeah, you do. And but anyways, like they just the disappointment of that first year pro, and then the next year. But then I was like, I was playing. I scored the second game of the season, I think, and then I think like the sixth game. And I'm thinking like I might score forty, like you know, two and six, whatever. Right? I scored on Patrick Wah, and, and then. Uh, we were struggling mightily. So we went like two and 10 or two and 12 or something. And you know, our goalies were Dwayne Rolison and Rick Tabaracci. And that was before Roley. It was Roley the goalie. And, you know, so we lost a lot of games, three, two and two, one. And it wasn't their, all their fault or anything. We just, you know, whatever. We weren't a good enough team. But so yeah. I get punted to like after like eight games or 10 games, I get punted to the fourth line because guys are complaining about ice time. And that was my story about Madison Square Gardens. I hadn't scored for three months. And, and literally all they wanted you to do on the fourth line was just go and run around. Like they didn't care if you took a penalty. Like I remember Rich Preston showing me a video of a guy by the name of Ed Ward. who was built like a Greek God. And the video was he tried to dump it in and he kind of bobbled it and it was against Messier. So he slashed Messier. Then he cross-checked him. Then he got it back and he went to dump it. He lost it. And then he whacked him again. And I remember Rico, like, we called him. He goes, what'd you see? And I said, well, he could have got the puck in deep and then, you know, he got it back and then he didn't turn it over again. He's like, no, do you see that intensity? Did you see that? You know, you see that intensity? I was like, oh, my God, you're showing me video of a 
you know, a guy chopping a guy and cross jacket. So I was like, okay. So that was like, they were showing me video of that. So I was like, all right. So then, you know, like Sedzi would say, like, literally you have two shifts to show me if you're ready to play. Otherwise you're not playing or whatever. So I think it was good in that sense where I would make sure my first shift or my first two shifts where like I hit somebody and I was ready to go, but I would just literally go out and just try and run guys and whack them. And they didn't care if you took a penalty because they're like, oh, it's intense. And I'm like, okay, no problem. So, yeah, I was a little disappointed the first year and then the second year, like ups and downs. And, you know, right. it just really, yeah, it just really teaches you sometimes you got to be in the right place at the right time. And you got to have somebody that, uh, you know, believes in you or, you know, you never really have like, you're like, you know, you remember there's certain coaches like, oh, they have their guys. Like, remember Keenan would have his guys. So, like, when Keenan was in New York, he'd bring in McTavish and Anderson and Noonan and all those guys, right? That he knew. And why he'd do that is he knew he'd, what he'd get out of them. Like, Craig McTavish would kill penalties, win face offs, and, you know, play basic. So, you know, I always wanted, I was, I always say, like, like if Bobby Lowe's could have been a coach in the NHL, would, you know, if I would have played for him, would my career have been different or would I have more opportunities? Like, you never know. I, I just always think, and I was talking to Scout too. He's like, well, you had a pretty good career. And I was always a guy who was like, I wanted more. I wanted to play more and, you know, whatever. And I, you know, I was very lucky in what everything I did. And I, you know, I think I earned it because I worked my ass off. But you always wonder, like, if I was someone's guy, would I have, you know, because sometimes you see where you'll put a guy, like, even Paul Riley, like Alex Tangay, like, he was a first round pick and he was playing with Sakic and Hayduk, like, Merry Christmas. And Alex Tangay, like, Tangay, great guy. Tangs was awesome, right? But you're playing with Joe Sackett and you know and uh, Milan Hayduk. Like it's, you know, you're gonna score 20 unless like there's something really wrong, right? But they're putting you in a position to succeed, and yeah. so just different things like that. You look back and you know, who knows? But could have been different. No. It could have been worse. Like, who knows? Yeah. No, for sure, man. I think you you hit a lot of great points there, and that was the one thing uh, that you recognize on the way on the way through is that it, it is there is that element to him. There's a relationship element to hockey. You know, and it's not just uh, whoever the best player might be or how it fits. Like, there's pieces to a puzzle on a team, and there's also the relationships within that team. And and some coaches obviously are going to like different aspects of players differently, right? They're going to have preferences, and those preferences make a difference. Like you said, Paul Baxter wasn't – Chris Dingman wasn't high on his radar. Um, and for whatever reason, whereas if Bob Lowe's was there, you would probably have first-line power play minutes standing in front of the net, right? You know what I mean? Because he knew you and knew what you were all about. What is there any takeaways from that first year? Like, if you were to do that first year again, like I don't know how you handled that off the ice, on the ice. Would there have been anything you would tell a young Chris Dingman now, like that, uh, you know, that would maybe have helped out in that scenario? Um, to be honest, to go in there and like challenge him to a fight, to be honest, like you know, you hear the stories of like Chris Chelios when uh, who was a keen and sat him out or something, he went in his office and he took his stick. And I've met Shelly a couple of times, a great guy. He took a stick and like knocked everything off his desk and said, you're not sitting me out. You do that again. I'm going to basically, I'm going to kill you. And then you remember, you know, the roofs that were like the styrofoam, you know, the squares, you know, whatever, the whatever that styrofoam, whatever stuff. And they javelined his stick into the roof and walked out and he never sat out and he never sat out again. And I think, I think it was Chelios or Danico. It was like one of those two guys. And I heard a similar story about Danico, but. If I would have done it differently, that's what I would have done. I would have went in and I, I, I would have challenged Baxter and said, you better freaking play me or why aren't you playing me and got in his face? Because I think I was a guy that didn't like rocking the boat. And even over the course of my career, I was always a good team guy. And like, 
I mean, I had two goals in two games in Tampa, and then I sat out 11 straight because Torch wanted to get more speed in the lineup. I'm like, well, we just lost 5-1. I scored the only goal. I guess it wasn't that slow, but I think I would have been more confrontational and fought like, in that first year because Paul Baxter, he thought he had to be hard on me because I was a first-round pick, but he loved Clark Wilm or Keith McCambridge, and they're great guys, and Wilmer had a good career, but, like, were we any different? Like, like we're all out drinking together and stuff, and – you know, and, and, and like Wilmer wanted to be my roommate. And I remember calling my wife, my girlfriend. I'm like, you got to come down. Like, I can't live with you. Like, it's not going to be good because <laughs> we all lived in the same building. We had fun anyways, but I was like, you got to come down a little bit. Like, I can't, I, like, I'll probably drink myself out of the league or something because there <laughs> wasn't anything else to do in St. John. You played hockey, you drank beer, and you, you know, we played cards. And, uh, yeah, right. there wasn't there wasn't a lot going on. So, uh, yeah, that's the one thing I would have, that's the one thing I really would have done differently is I would have, I would have went in and forced the point and said, why are you playing me or whatever, you know, because I came in, I did everything going into camp. I, I came in it the way you wanted. I was in the top 10 in conditioning, my body fat, whatever. Like, what yeah. else do you want me to do, basically? But I was never a guy that really wanted to rock the boat. So I think I would have, telling a younger me or what I would have done differently, I would have rocked the boat and made a yeah, That's a good stay. point. I think that's great to be able to stand up for yourself. And that's one thing, retrospectively, looking back, um, is that the coaches that I had that were hard asses, that's exactly what they wanted to see out of you too. You know, like they, like that's what yeah. made them tick. They wanted to see that fire and that passion. And a lot of times players would, would, I mean, me for one would think of like, that's disrespectful, right? Like I'm disrespecting this guy by, by doing that, but really they wanted you to show that and respect yourself, you know? And, and, uh, and I think, yeah. I think, um, I think that's kind of left the game a little bit or is leaving it. You know I mean? That type of confrontational approach to like show how much you want it. Um, but you know I mean, like you said, there's lots of guys that that's exactly what they wanted to see. So you might be right there. You might've got a little more minutes by doing that. That's for sure. But that, but that goes against like the way we were brought up in like Western league, you paid your dues. Like you played on the floor flying, you carried the stick bag, you do all that. Like that goes against everything that was ingrained in us as kids. Like, you know, you shut your mouth and you paid your dues. And then to what you're saying, they need these coaches. They want you to then challenge them. Well, yeah. that, you know, like I remember going to like a junior, like uh, Bobby Lowe's took and look at me. I had three, three earrings on the bottom and one up top at the time. And I was into music. I was a drummer, but he took one look at me. He goes, you don't think you're keeping those effing things, do you? And I was like, well, kind of. He's like, not if you're going to freaking play here, you get them out of your, you know, whatever. So I took them out of my ears. You know, I was like, yeah wasn't like I was allowed to do it, but no one was. So it's just yeah. so like, you know, to be confrontational because you didn't want to be that guy that was a, a problem or an asshole or whatever. So it's just, yeah, right. you know, if you, if you would have known that, but it's like you, like coaches back then, like and you experience this probably different guys is that it's always like a mind game. They're always playing a mind game with you. And, you know, very few coaches, like, this is what I want from you. This is what I want you to do. Like everything was always like a trick or a mind game. And it's like, why does it have to be that way? Like, you're a young guy, you're insecure or whatever. And like other guys are just, you feel like they're handed a position or, you know, they're never threatened or sad out where not everyone's like that. So, you yeah. know, I think you would wish it would have been a little different, but you know, it's obviously now it's more about talking to guys and you can't really yell and scream. I mean, some guys still do, but you know, here and there, but obviously the communications have changed quite a bit. Hey there, have a new program coming out called the Peak Potential Hockey Project. It's elite mindset skills for the serious hockey player. Uh, this is the first time I've brought my services to 
uh, a group environment. Uh, the success I've been having with my private clients has been amazing. Uh, the work I've done with teams last last year was super rewarding, and now I want to bring in different individuals from all across North America who want to work on their mindset skills and prepare for this next season in a four-week program uh, that includes calls with me, four weekly calls with me. Uh, there's also online material that is done in bite-sized, easy-to-consume pieces uh, with actionable uh, steps where you can apply this stuff to your day, to your life now, so you can get better at it. So when you are in the heat of a season, uh, coming this fall, you can use some of these things to help you better prepare for games, handle anxiety, adversity, um, prepare your state to be the best you can be in the moment uh, for each and every shift. So super excited to bring this to uh, to a broader audience. Uh, you can check out the details of the Peak Hockey uh, or Peak Potential Hockey Project uh, on my website, uh, upmyhockey.com. Uh, only 20 players uh, I'm accepting. And, uh, and yeah, it's going to be a great ride. I think it's perfect for anyone 14 years of age and older. And um, the earlier you get this stuff in you, the better. So if, you're, if you are all interested in what we've been talking about here on, on Up My Hockey, about being able to use your mind, um, being able to use your mindset and your approach and your perspective and your intention and your character and all these uh, amazing intangibles uh, to help you better succeed and prepare you for success and also prepare you uh, to handle some adversity, uh, then this is the program for you. And I think a lot of players need this right now after a little bit of an uncertain season, a little bit of a disappointing season for many, and they need to you know, use these skills and develop these tools to make sure they don't lose any, any ground on the field. So um, without further ado, you can find that at www.upmyhockey.com. And back to the episode with Chris Dingman. Yeah, no, great points. You mean Brad Larson, who you obviously know, as do I, uh, just got given the head coaching job there in Columbus and well-deserved in my opinion. Uh, but I think it's guys like that that are coming in now that understand that those mind games that happened before, you know, was bullshit, essentially. You know I mean? Like the accountability lies in players knowing what you want from them and then allowing them to go out and do it. You know, and, and not having the smoke and mirrors and the guesswork. And, um, you know, Lars, I listened to his press conference. I mean, all about accountability, all about honesty. And I think once you get that from a coach, uh, you know, then it's on you. The, the, the responsibility is on you if they're being serious with you. And and uh, and I think a lot of us that grew up there and played in the 90s and the early 2000s, we didn't have that experience. So now those guys that are in that in those shoes now recognize, you know, sort of where we went wrong back in the day and are, are evolving the game, which is a, which is a blessing for these young players. But now there's now there is more onus on the players. And I see that there's a lack of accountability with the players. I mean, once you get told something, you don't want to hear that something that's right in your face and you don't really want to hear it. You don't want to listen yeah. to it. Um, you need to be able to follow through on that if you want to, you know, if you want to have the career that you want. But uh, that's another topic. What about um, your first trade there? So, you I mean you have your year in the show? Uh, turns out to be obviously an amazing thing for you and for your career. And you, you mean you go to a team that I want to hear about? Uh, what did that feel like uh, getting getting that first trade? And were you expecting it? And and walk us through that. Um, well, yeah, I was expecting it, it sort of because I remember one of the player personnel guys came down to St. John and I was back, you know, you play three games in three nights and then you go to the bar. And I remember the bar Rockies, we go there. There's one other one, a country, it was like half rock, half country bar. And I remember like one of the player personnel guys from Calgary came down. And I said to him, like, what are you doing? And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, what are you guys doing? He's like, what do you mean? I said, like, this was when, remember, like, I don't know if you remember, like the, the, the Canadian teams were in, 
they're in danger of moving to the U.S. Like Edmonton, Calgary, the Canadian dollar, like they were struggling. Right? And the Oilers had that ownership group that took over. And I remember saying to them, like, and I had a clause in my contract. If I played 70 games, my contract became a one-way contract, you know, rather than a two-way. I had a two-way of guaranteed, whatever. And so the year before I played over 70, so they sent me down and I'm making four and a quarter in the minors. And then, you know, get your complaint, like, you know, that they might lose their team and they need this funding and the Canadian teams. And I remember saying, I'm like, like, what are you guys doing? Like, you guys are complaining that you're losing money. I'm making four and a quarter down here. And what it was is like we had the team had traded German Titov for Ken Reggett, David Roach. And Ken Reggett got hurt in camp. And then, you know, it was like basically me or David Roach. I don't know. Like, so they keep him, they send me down. But like, you're complaining, you're losing money, and you, you didn't have to send me down to make four and a quarter in the minors. So right. um, I was kind of looking for a change, and, you know, and a change happened, and it was uh, terrific. I, you know, like, to go to a team like Colorado is in the flurry deal as the other guy. So, and, uh, you know, they, I played, uh, like, I went to Hershey, and rented our in Hershey, the whole place smells like chocolate, which was awesome. And, <laughs> um, but my coaches there were unbelievable. Mike, Mike Felino and Jay Wells, they were great. They were like, and Mike Felino was the first coach that ever asked me how I was doing. Like, how are you doing? I mean, I got called up for one game. I fought Probert. First shift, you know, line up, Probert, you know, comes, lines up, we scored a goal. And Mulliken or Mulliken was her coach. Remember the guy from Junior? He's a yeah. Saskatoon Mooner or Medicine Hat or Moose Jaw, one of them. Oh, Saskatoon, I think, yeah. So he sends Probert out. Or we'd, yeah, so we uh, line up and Probert comes out and, you know, Gives me, you know, your coach sent you to give me a try. I said, no, but, you know, if you want to go, we can. He goes, you sure? And he asked me, and I was like, yeah, sure. So, anyways, like, yeah, I have a good fight. I beat him. Then he wants to fight again. And I played a minute 52 seconds. But anyways, so before the game, Bob Harley, who's kind of a dickhead, and he gives me this speech, well, you do the job. I don't care. I'll keep you, you know, blah, blah, blah. After the game, you know, I, I, I beat Probert, and then we have another fight. He jumps me, and, and I was like, nothing fight. We fall down. And then he calls me in after and says, well, we're sending you back down. I see here you're 246. You can't play in the league at 246. You got to lose 10 pounds. So I'm like, you know, get called up, whatever, sent back down. I, like, wanted to quit. I wanted to pack it. I was like, you know, what more do you want me to do? I could have got killed and fighting Bob Probert. And then I see his documentary where that was back when he was back on cocaine and doing steroids. And I'm like, I just fought a coked up guy, one of the toughest guys in the league ever, and beat him. And, like, and you tell me I got to lose weight. Like, and I got to fight these guys. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to, like, I, I was really down. And I just remember going back, and Mike Felino was like, how's it going? I said, I think I want to quit. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, I just, you know, like, what more can I do, basically? Like, I fight, and I do everything he says. And then he tells me I got to lose weight. And he said, listen, I can't. I'll never forget Mike Felino goes, I can't control what that asshole's going to do up there. But down here, you got to play. So he's like, you know how to lose weight? Just ride the bike. So I had to ride the bike for 60 minutes after practice. He's like, just ride the bike, lose the weight, and you're going to play. Down here, you're going to play. He played me overtime, 4-on-4, four four, penalty kill, power play. And it was great. And, you know, he's a big reason why the next year, you know, I came to camp in great shape and I ended up making the team over Scott Parker. Um, but he was a big part of that. Like him and Jay Wells just – then we were in the black ace. We were up for like two months. I'm like, how long are we going to be up here for? And it's how messed up it is so hardly. He calls up me and Parker. We're playing Detroit. And they had Darren McCarty and – you know, Prover's already gone, but, you know, they had the that, the, current, the grind line or whatever. And it was Amir Parker was going to play. And Parker was barely playing in the minors. And nothing against Scott Parker, but he's, you know, he was a real tough guy. He wasn't the best player. Like, I was a better player, if you ask me. And 
whatever. But that's just my opinion. So in a town I was playing more, well, they called the two of us up, hardly dresses Parker and tells him in warm up just to skate across the red line and stare at their team. And then he makes them sit at the end of the bench and just glare at their team. And it was just embarrassing. It was like minor league shit, right? And like Detroit, like they're like, what the, like they don't care, right? And Parker didn't even play a shift. So we get called up. He doesn't, it's a, I'm just embarrassed for him too, because it's just bullshit, you know, like play him a shift or two. But if you made him stand there and like, just stare at the other bench, like they don't care. Like what the hell is this guy staring at us for? Because they know they're not going to be on the ice against them. And it's the playoffs. Right. They know they don't have to fight. So, anyways, it was just weird. So we get called up and, so he plays, I don't, and then, uh, you know, we had, there was eight of us and Mark Denny was a goalie and, and then they send like Tangy and school. They, they couldn't, they weren't eligible to play because they came from junior. And then they sent Parker home. So they sent like half the guys home and then I stayed and I stayed for the whole run. So like he goes up, he plays ahead of me. And then I ended up staying longer than him. And it was just a great experience being a black case. I never played or whatever, but you know, just to be able to hang out like Jay Wells, Mike Felino made it fun. Like they made, practicing fun and then we go to like a dave and busters and we would uh you know watch the dogs because uh felino loved the dogs so i was like what's this what's the trifecta is with like a dollar or whatever it's nothing right but it was so much fun but those guys had such an impact on my career and they were doing the push-ups with us and stuff you know 10 to 1 1 to 10 stuff like that in the locker room and so it was a great experience it was it was great to go there it was great to you know have those guys the coaches like as i said felino and, and, and jay well mike felino and jay wells and the first guys that asked me how I was doing, and then just that whole team, just the guys, like uh, just the, some of the greatest players, the greatest people, like Ray Borg, Patrick Wah. I could go on. They're all awesome guys, and treated me like an equal, and which was great. And you know, I go for beers of Ray Borg, and it's like, what am I doing? I'm going for a beer of Ray Borg, and I'm sitting next to him at a bar, and it's uh, it was awesome. It was just the whole experience, and you know, people always ask me like, what was the difference between Tampa and Colorado, or Whatever, and I just like going to Colorado. Like in Calgary, you're trying to make the playoffs. That was your goal, right? Our goal is to make the playoffs. In Colorado, your goal is to win the cup, and that's what it was. That was your goal was to win the Stanley Cup, and and it was unbelievable going there. Just that we're going to win the cup, and that's anything less is unacceptable. And I just love that. And then we traded for Ray <clears throat> the first year, and then we lost in seven games to Dallas. And then the next year, it was we're going to finish first overall. So if you have a game seven, it's in our building. Anything less is unacceptable. And it was like the whole season was about winning, and it was unbelievable. It was just awesome. And it wasn't like there was a ton of pressure. It was just all about winning. And everything was like, win one for Ray. And Ray was like, don't win one for me. He's like, screw that. You win it for yourself because my name will be right next year. So, And he actually went in and told the story a few times, but he actually went in St. Louis. He went in and told the coaches because they were killing him. And we had like, you know, we had Adam Foote, and we had Rob Blake and Greg DeVries and Martin School and John Clyde. We had good defensemen. And they're killing him. Like we call time with the lead, so they got Ray Bork out, so they could rest him. And he went into the coach's office and basically slammed the door and came out. And a minute later, two minutes later, and said, "Everyone's going to play. Like be ready, because you know Hartley was doing his minor league thing where he he was killing the top guys. And you know in the playoffs, like you need everybody. You need four lines. Like you, you can't go four rounds. And but he was killing. Like Joe Sackick's one of the best conditioned athletes I've ever played with. But he can't play twenty five minutes a night as a forward. You can't unless it's all power play. But I just remember, like, Ray Bork wanted to win so bad. He went in there and told the coaches to play him less. And we were going into, like, triple overtime or something, and I was playing with Dave Reed and Dan Ino at the time. And we'd score Steve Reinfeldt, one of the – it's usually one of the three of them that we'd all play together. And we'd scored a goal that game. We'd played, like, less than eight minutes going into triple overtime. So think about that. Like, overall ice time. And those other guys, are like, he was killing them. So, you know, I just remember that. Like, he wanted – Ray wanted to win so bad. 
and Patty and like all those guys, like he just, he, he basically said, play me less. I can't play 30 minutes a night. And I just respect right. that. It's, you know, the guys are so selfish at times and about their points and whatever. And they obviously played a long time. And I remember him saying, I went to the finals like my first year, whatever against Edmonton. He goes, I thought we'd be right back. And here I am 20 years later. So like, he kind of knew the, not the gravity of it, but you know, you get older and whatever. And this is a whole yeah. fame guy. They wanted to play less. Not that he wanted to play less. He knew he couldn't. I remember, like, every practice was optional. And he comes out, and I'm like, Bubba, what the guys called him Bubba. And I'm like, Bubba, what are Borky? You know, I'm like, Bubba, what are you doing, man? He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, why are you out here? Like, it's not optional for me, but it's optional for you. Like, you're like 41 or 42, I think I said. And he goes, first of all, I'm not. I'm 40 or 41. I'm not 42. Second of all, if I don't come out and skate, I'm going to be able to get out of bed. Excuse my back hurts so bad. So shut the – I'm like, I don't know. I wasn't being rude. I was just – like he was just joking around, but he would come out for like 10 minutes. Do like, so every practice was optional for the top guys. So he would come out for 10 or 15 minutes, do a couple of shooting drills and then just go off the ice. And then the rest of us would stay out and skate and do extra, but he just loved it. He just, he, if he didn't do that, he wouldn't be able to move. And I was like, okay. Cause I was just kind of <laughs> like, why are you like, man, if I had the, if I had the option, I probably wouldn't be out here. Like, you know, if I played as much as you kind of thing. So. Anyways, I just like those couple things I remember about him, but it's just such a good guy and a good leader. So it was that whole experience was just awesome because it was all about winning and it was all about the process and it was just great. It wasn't like you know, because as a team, your goal is to win the Stanley Cup, whether that's realistic or not. But you know, I just think it sends the wrong message where you're like, Well, our goal is to make the playoffs. Well, no, it isn't. Your goal is to win the Stanley Cup, whether that's realistic or not, you know, is one thing, but you know, that's that's why we play, right? We play to win. Like you, yeah. and if you don't make it, you don't make it. Or if you lose, you lose, but you, you put your chips on the table. You try as hard as you can. I just, you know, I just really loved the atmosphere of those guys. It was all about winning and the team and stuff, and which was really refreshing. And it just it really uh, had a big impact on my life that these yeah. great players weren't assholes. They were awesome people that treated you well and took care of you and stuff. So really good. Yeah. And it wasn't always the case, you know, um, you, you played on different teams. Well, actually, you were on another championship team where I'm sure that, I mean, a similar culture must have been created. Uh, there, there's not always, I mean, not every team's equal in the NHL and the cultures aren't equal, you know, and the players that are involved in them aren't equal. So it was awesome you were able to see that. And in my conversation with Brad Larson, who was also part of that Colorado Avalanche team, never won a cup with them, but like was a part of that, the, you know, the greatness there. And, and he went from there yeah. to Atlanta. And uh, he said, like, the, the difference was... I mean, you could cut it, you could see it, right? I mean, you could feel it. And just being a part of that extreme accountability uh, that you're speaking of, like, it was really cool to listen to him hear, to say that because it was like no one was off limits. Everybody wanted the absolute best out of everybody and, and would call each other on it. And, uh, and one thing Brad said was, like, er, he felt important in his role, like, really important. Like, they made him feel important that his seven, eight minutes, like, made a difference every night. And some would, would go out of their way to make them feel like he was a part of it. And um, I think, like, not only is that transfer, I mean, not only is that a great lesson for hockey and for coaches and for players, like, trying to create that environment. But also, I mean, you're you're not a hockey player anymore. Now you're in business. Like, teams that kind of can get that attitude have a massive advantage. So I think it's transferable to anything. Um and it's it's awesome hearing about success because it definitely le leaves clues. Yeah. Well, and even I can look at a coach now, and uh, you know, my kids are playing sport, playing hockey, and the other thing, like coaching, you're coaching them to be human beings. Like you're, you're like you're, you're coaching hockey or 
whatever you coach, baseball, soccer, football. But I look at it, you know, like talking to my wife to different people. It's like you're like I'm developing human beings. Like show up early. Be ready. Don't be an asshole. Be, be a yes man. Listen, can you, can you play left wing? Yes, sure. Can you play center? Sure. Play right wing? Sure. Defense? Sure. Yeah, whatever you need. Like, you know, like you're developing good people. And I think that's what hockey and sports uh, is good for. It's very humbling at times. I think we both know that because you can be called up, sent down, cut, whatever. But it's also, it teaches you to work. And you know, I think you see in business, like even, you know, coming back to Alberta is, there's a lot of companies that hire ex-hockey players because they know they work hard and they're good guys and, you know, they can tell stories and it's relatable. So I think, you know, that part of it and like even the winning, winning is so hard. And, you know, we've been like a junior, I was close. I you know, won a Western League championship, but I never won a Memorial Cup. And, you know, you go back, would you do it differently? But it's winning is so hard. And when you see teams that win and don't win, there was always like, a, there was something, there was a fatal flaw, there was something was missing in a, I go back to Washington where, you know, Alex Ovechkin was scoring 50, like nothing, right? He's just, and then I remember like I was around the team in Tampa and I was doing uh, TV and stuff. And, you know, he'd say hi to me. He's like, hi, hi, Chris. And I'm like, holy shit, you know, Ovi knows my name, like, cause I was done playing or whatever. But I just remember like the year they won and it was probably the least talented team and they had over the years. Cause they, you know, they had so many, you know, talented players, you know, like Mike Green and go through their defense and show whatever. But it was like, I remember watching the playoffs. And it was even during that season. I'm watching, and Alex Ovechkin dives and blocks a shot. And then he was playing defense. He was playing the trap, and he was dumping it in. And I'm, like, sitting there going, well, if Alex Ovechkin's jumping in front of a shot, if I'm a third-line guy, like if I'm Devontae Smith-Pelly or a third- or fourth-line guy, I better hell is, like, diving my face in front of a puck. And it was, like, that culture. And he really, like, set the culture because he was one – like, I, I just really believe, like, why they won. It was that he'd scored goals. Right? He'd scored a ton of goals. Like he'd been a 50 goal scorer, and, but he wanted to win. And I think he knew like he wouldn't be in that conversation until he won a cup. Like whether it's right or wrong, you know, you talk about the Hall of Fame and, you know, like whether winning's important. And I think winning is important. Like, you know, sometimes, you know, guys are just in the wrong situation. But I just remember, like that example of him, he was playing defense, he's blocking shots, he's like making kick saves. And it's just infectious, like his teammates and stuff. And he was cheering his teammates on. So when you see that, like, for me, I love that. Like, I just love the, you know, the teamwork aspect of it and the camaraderie is that, you know, when you get everybody buying in, which is the biggest thing as a coach, I think, and I remember someone said this to me, like, you're never going to have everyone happy because you're four flying guys, you're guys that are sitting out, they're going to be sour because they're not playing. But he's like, as long as you have two thirds of the guys pulling in your direction, they'll pull the other ones because maybe they'll get more ice time at a different time. But you're always going to have guys that are going to be unhappy. But if you have them in, like two thirds, then you're good because they'll pull the rest of the guys. And that's the hardest thing, I think, with coaching is that, you know, you, we talked to you, you'd said earlier, it's the communication part. By the way, we are on live on uh, Facebook and we're on live on YouTube. So if this is a episode that you ever want to watch live, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel, um, Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan, or follow me on Facebook. Obviously, this gets released uh, to all podcast platforms. It'll be on Monday. Uh, and this is an opportunity to join the conversation live and to ask uh you know, a two-time Stanley Cup champion, any questions you want to ask? Anyone who is listening right now, um, please uh, be, be uh, ask your questions if you have anything for Dinger. So sorry about that, Dinger. Um, yeah, no, I was I was just to, to, to piggyback on what you were what you were saying there. Like, I think Ovi 
I mean, and I, and I didn't watch every game of Ovi of every playoff game, but the year they won, he seemed like a different player. Like it, it was not about him anymore. Like he had made that commitment, you know, to do what it takes in any capacity to win. And, and I think it was, it was a different Alex Ovechkin and he got a different result. And I thought that was really cool to see because it was an evolution, a personal evolution for him, you know, to see what it took. And other guys have done that. You I mean like Eiserman and you I mean other guys have had to learn what it takes to go from a superstar to a guy that can win a cup. Uh, and some guys just can't make that make that transition. So it was super cool to watch. Um, in, in the two environments you were in there, you mean you you were surrounded by superstars, like you said in Colorado. Um, maybe more of a little bit uh, less superstar ridden, I, I would say, in, in Tampa, but still some amazing players. You know, uh, Martin St. Louis, Louis for one is somebody that I have a massive respect for. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on him. Um, but what was the what was that environment like there? Was it a little bit of different approach the year you guys won in Tampa as opposed to uh, Colorado? Um, I don't know if it was a different approach. It was uh, like Colorado. We had established superstars, and Tampa was we had up and coming superstars. So Brad Richards and Marty St. Louis and Vinny Cavalier and uh, you know Boyle. Um, they were becoming great players. They were good players that became great players in those playoffs. You know, Marty St. Louis was a good, was a good player. And, you know, he was, uh, you know, he, Craig Budden, he says it was, you know, whatever, those worst mistake I made or whatever when he bought out Marty. And, but Marty got an opportunity in uh, Tampa and Torts liked him and he tried him with Freddie Modine and Brad Richards. And he was just like, Torts liked that line. And then the way they went, they were just aligned. So uh, in Tampa, we just, I remember we played Detroit in Detroit and we lost two one in overtime or something. And that was kind of when guys went like, we're, we're a good team. And then we lost to Jersey in um, five games. I think it was the year before we won and Jersey went on to win the, the cup. And uh, it was like triple overtime we lost. And that was where we kind of went, okay, like we can, you know, we could be a team maybe like, and that's like, just we're talking to the guys after, you know, we, after we'd won and stuff. And then the next year we go into the season and, we just got on a roll. Like we were struggling around December and then we got on a roll and we just, we won the first round. We're like, okay, we match up pretty good here in Montreal. And then we won the second round and we just kind of uh, like, why not us? Do you know what I mean? Like, why, why, like, why can't we win? So the two experiences were just different in the sense where we are like, Hey, we can win. You know, and then you're playing Calgary and they're an ape seed or whatever. And it was great. You know, and it just, it was like, I just, again, between the two people say, which one was better? There wasn't one that was better. It's, winning's awesome. And, you know, lucky to be there and be a part and, be, and have played. And uh, it's just, Tampa was just, had those guys, they were just, that's when they made a name for themselves. You know, Marty became, you know, Marty St. Louis, like, you know, and then the Olympics and all that other stuff and everything else. They did the world championships, and the world cups and stuff. So those guys really became the Peter Forsbergs and the Joe Sackicks. And that's, to me, that was the, the difference between the two, I guess, maybe. All right. Yeah. Super cool story. And then, I mean, must've been a little, little more flavor maybe in the second one playing against Calgary, where you started from, you know, and who had traded you and let you go. And, you know, some, there are still some players there like Iggy and, and others that, that were there from when your time was there. So, um, Interesting the way that crosses, and one thing with your trades too, which I, which I'll just think for between you and I, but like uh, Rene Corbet, um, Kevin Weeks, um, well Nolan Pratt too, who you won those two cups with. They're all been guests on the show before, so like it's yeah. it's kind of crazy how, how how small the hockey world is in some instances. Um, give me your best uh, St. Louis story because I, I, I've I've said it on here once before, like it, it he's. 
unless you're like a real big Martin St. Louis fan, people don't really get like his journey to get to where he, he got to, you know, like he was told by, by Calgary that he wasn't good enough, right. That he'd never play in the NHL. Um, and this is a hall of famer. Like to me, that just blows my mind, right? Like, like you talked about yeah. opportunity, you talked about that earlier, right? Like here's a guy who didn't get, if he wasn't put in a different situation, he might've never had a career and he's a hall of famer, right? Like uh, somebody didn't think he was good enough to play in the <coughs> league. Um, and he just kept battling and kept battling. And I talked to Kevin Weeks about it. And like, he kind of found, started believing in himself in Tampa Bay and started believing that he could perform there. And then he got some proof and some results. And then obviously the rest is history. But um, w- what do you say about him and his, his personality and his character or anything else you want to talk about with him? Cause I just think he's, he's got such a, such a great story. Well, we played together in the minors. So, and I block a shot. We're out there. Uh, the other team had the goalie pulled. So I take one off the ankle. I take off and I'm going to go score. Well, he takes off and he's going to go offside. And I'm like, I got to pass it. Oh, I can't hear you again. I don't know why it's doing that. Can't hear you. There, sorry. Yeah. The phone is doing he said he was going to go offside, and then I lost you. Yeah, so he takes off. So we were talking about it after. So he takes off, and I like basically, if I don't pass it to him, he's going offside. And I was kind of like after, like, what are you doing, man? Like, hey, guy, I was going to score. He's like, hey, I'm open, man. I saw the ice. You got to give it to me. It's your job, basically. And I was like, I was having. He's like, hey, you got to give it to me. And I remember that. Like, I still remember that because he was maybe passing to him, basically. But you know, his guy that um, chip on his shoulder, too small. You know, his legs were massive, but he was a guy that was always in phenomenal shape. And, you know, he got an opportunity to tap it towards like, I mean, towards like the little guy. And he just took it and ran. That's Marty St. Louis to a T that he had a chip on his shoulder. You know, he wasn't good enough, too small. You know, because at that time, you know, everyone's getting drafted in the first round. It was like over six feet. And, you know, it was just like you look at our, like even our two careers. I started in Calgary. He was in the minors. And then he goes to Tampa. We both go to Tampa and, you know, he ends up playing a ton more than me. And, you know, I was the first round pick and it's just the way things work out. Like Torts liked him. Like he was one of like Torts just, he would have his guys, like guys he liked and Marty was one of them, deservedly so. And Marty earned everything he got. He just, he was in like, when he went to Tampa too, there's some injuries. So he got an opportunity. He started on the fourth line and then they had some injuries and then he got moved up and he played with Modine and Richards. And then that line clicked for whatever it was, I think. And then, they were great, and you know, look at the careers they all had. So, and they all complimented each other. So, you know, that's just Marty's just that guy. Like he's, I used to joke around like we're in, go to Montreal, and I'm like, oh, the circus is in town. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like all the, you know, the circus is all the because his family's all tiny and they're super nice people. And hi, Chris, you know, whatever. <laughs> he's just like they're all like five foot six. You know, they're all just like small, like you know, shorter people and stuff. And, so, yeah, Marty deserved everything he had. And the best thing about Marty is that he can walk on his hands, like literally like down a hallway because he used to do gymnastics. So that's a little known fact. So every time I see him, he's still walking uh, your hands. He's like, I don't know, maybe, yeah, he could down a hallway on his hands. Unbelievable. Yeah, so. That's sweet. That is super sweet. Um, what was I going to ask you? Uh, oh, I wanted to just just a personal opinion on some uh, something that happened recently here in the playoffs. Uh, that uh, Shifley hit on Evans. Um do you do you have well, what's your take on that? I just find that that hit has been one of the things that has been like so decisive 
uh, in the community and even amongst players. I mean, to listen to how Bieksa handled it and some of these other pundits. And then, you know, I talked to some people offline and, and it seems like there is a pretty big divide there. Do you think, what do you think about that hit? Was it, was it, should have been a suspension, should have been more? Uh, what's your feeling on that whole scenario? Um, I don't think it should have been a suspension. Like, to be honest with you, like, I mean, obviously the game's changed. So the way guys play is different. Like, guys routinely turn face the boards when someone's coming to hit them. Like, routinely. And you, like, back when we played, you never did that because you get killed, right? Like, you, you turned your, you turned sideways, you turned your shoulder, and that's what you did. And, you know, in that position, like, what are you expecting on a wraparound? Like, I remember when I played, when you took a puck to the end, you expected to get hit. Like, that was, you know, so when, like, Shifley was probably frustrated, but, like, what else? Like, he didn't take a stride, but if he would have, like, let's say he would have kept skating hard, and what if he would have had a stick out? He probably would have got hurt, because if he would have lunged at him with a stick, he probably would have got smoked in the head. So, I mean, I look at it where, you know, hitting's still a part of the game. And there's really no onus on the player now. Like, guys cut to the middle. And even when I was, like, when I coached peewee kids, they like to cut to the middle. I'm like, listen, you can't do that. Next year, you're dead. And, like, ban them, you're dead. Like, you go to the top of the circles and just cut to the middle, like, you're dead. Like, you got to protect yourself. And so I think on that, I think it's, uh, you know, the onus is on the player. And, yeah, he's vulnerable and, like, concussions and whatever. But, you know, part of hockey is, you know, in the playoffs, it's a war of attrition where, you're going to get hit. You're a defenseman. You got to go back and get the puck. You know you're going to get hit. It's the guy that continues to go back and continues to get the puck, or you know takes the hit on the board. So, you know I think yeah. it changed the complexion of the series. It was unfortunate the guy, you know, the player got hurt, but you know the way the rules are now, they have to call that. They have to do something. But there's so many other hits where, I mean, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. I just think you know he's a skilled guy. He was frustrated, but the you know principal point of contact was. You know, his shoulder was down. It was tucked. But when you hit the guy, like, I don't know, when you when I used to hit guys, like, I'm trying to hurt them. Like, I'm not trying to decapitate them. But, I mean, you know, the odd time you get mad, you want to. But you're not yeah. trying – like, you're trying to – like, tackling. We tackle someone in football. What are you trying to do? Like, you're not trying to not hurt them. But, like, when you let up and you don't hit, that's when you get hurt. So, I think right. uh, I think it was unfortunate, but whatever. Yeah, I think uh... – my opinion on that whole thing is what you is where where you started from, and I and that's the one thing that I haven't heard from anyone talking about it is the accountability on Evans, um, to how does he how does he take that puck to the net, and, and why is he not expecting contact? Right, like you said it yourself. I mean, any time, and, and I don't care when we played, even now, you go to that area, like that's a hot zone, even in today's game. Like you should be expecting contact, and because he wasn't, he got hurt. And, and I think that everyone, I mean, of course, no one wants him to get hurt. Everyone has to preface that. No one wants him to get hurt. That was awful to see him on the ice. But I think the accountability lies with him. And Shifley shouldn't be responsible for him not being responsible. I mean, like, that's the part that I don't understand either. Like, why is the onus on Shifley not to hit him um, if he's not expecting contact? Like, if you're going to take that puck there, like, Evans had a lot of other options, Dinger, as you know. He could have stayed behind the net with it. He could have taken it to the corner. He could have delayed and found a late guy. You know, he yeah. went that goal because he wanted the goal and he was not aware of the of what could happen to him so i'm with you i didn't think it was that dirty i think it was a hockey play i thought he kept his shoulder down i thought he lined him up and uh i think if evans was expecting contact then he probably would have stood there <laughs> wouldn't have got yeah. hurt and it would have been fine but anyways and that's the part that i don't like i don't like the accountability being shifted from the guy 
uh, you know, with the puck or the player, and everyone else has to be concerned for this guy more than you know. It, it, it kind of it, it's a weird it's a weird scenario where players are being put in now. I think, and I don't like it. I like the I like a little bit of the onus back on the guy with the puck. I would put it okay. Put it this way: so, <clears throat> in two thousand one, we played New Jersey in the Stanley Cup Finals, and they had Scott Stevens. And what did Scott Stevens do? He'd kill guys. Like, he just yeah. destroyed. He was destroying everyone. And so we would do, like, they played the trap, and we work on our neutral zone for, or, you know, our regroup. And it was D to D back to the D to the weak side because you had to have a perfect breakout or, you know, the trap. You wouldn't have got the puck, right? And then as soon as you move the puck, you got your stick up because you never knew when Scott Stevens was on the ice. So you move the puck as a winger, and then you got your stick up and you got ready. And that was, like, so he was killing everybody. So then there was a there was a, there was a in the series – he tried to run Sackick, and, and this is a big part of the series. And he tried to run Sackick, and Sackick dropped a shoulder on him. And, like, Stevens went, like, one, two, three, and then fell on his back and went down. And we were like, oh, yeah, wow, like, you know, whatever. And he's, like, standing up to the bully or whatever. But, yeah, you know, but Sackick, he was coming for him, and he braced him, and he caught him. He gave him, like, the cold shoulder ahead of time. So, you know, that was a big part of it. But, like, again, like, you got to protect yourself. And whether, you know, you don't want – I don't want anyone to get hurt. You don't want that. But – Part of it too, it's a contact sport and a weapon you have is body checking, is fighting. Like 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 Tom Wilson or Milan Lucic, those guys are effective because they will run you over and they could score. But then if you want to fight, they'll beat you up. So go ahead. I'm gonna run you over. I'll fight you and then I'll beat you up. Like remember when Lucic ran over uh Miller? Oh my god. And then the poor Gostad was the guy that had to fight him and took just an absolute beating, but Lucic ran him over and then turned around and said, who wants them? And, like, the game's right. changed a lot. But, like, man, to possess all those things, size, speed, skill, and then, you know, to be able to fight, that's – I mean, that's a weapon. Like, if guys in this day and age that can hit and do that, it's – I mean, it's paramount because the game's more about speed and skill, and it's, which yeah. it should be. But if you possess that physicality and the ability to back it up, oh, my goodness. Like, I mean, I, some people are all over me about the Tom Wilson thing in the playoffs where he – you know, he tackled the guy and he threw Panarin down. But what are you supposed to do in a brawl? Like, guys are jumping on your back. Like, he's, those guys are lucky he didn't take his gloves off and lay a beating on him. And then, you know, you see the Crosby. There was a couple games later, Crosby got a guy in a headlock and threw him to the ground and, like, tried to ram his head in the ice. Like, stuff happens all the time, but it's Tom Wilson, so people dislike him. And then, remember the next game, it was Bushnevich, I think, uh, cross-checked him another guy in the head. So. Yeah. This guy, like, what, like, what's your, like, you're talking about intent. Like, what's your intent when you cross-check somebody in the head? Your intent is to knock their teeth out or to hurt them. It's not to be their buddy, right? Yeah. So, again, like, so there's a bunch of different plays, but whatever. It's, yeah, it's, there's got to be some onus. So, anyways. Yeah. What, uh, we'll f- sign off with who your pick is. Who's going to, who do you think is going to lift, uh, lift Lord Stanley uh, this year? Yeah, I think it's got to be Tampa. I just think. You know, the way they responded uh, last night, uh, they're just so talented and they have a great goalie and, you know, they can play physical too. So they're, you know, the trifecta almost, I guess. So, you know, I think, uh, I think they're going to be the team to be. And we'll see if any different, but Vegas is a, I'd really like to see Vegas and Tampa just to see, you know, like two teams that are speed, skill, size, and good goaltending, like Flurry. Oh my God. Like he was gone two years ago. Now he's the guy again. Like, that's the beauty of sports. Like, he had a good attitude and, you know, stuck around. And now he's a guy. And Leonard, Rob Leonard has been a good, has a great attitude too. So it's like a good tandem. So it's just great yeah. stories. And actually, 
Vasilevsky, I was still skating a little bit with the guys in the summer. I remember skating with Vasilevsky. And he'd be calling me grandpa. He's like, Grandpa, you want to do shootout? You want to do shootouts all the time. You couldn't score. Not that I could score on them anyways, but like other more skilled guys like Kucherov had a hard time shooting like scoring on them. And then we're like, everyone's like, this is the guy. And then they traded Bishop. And I was like, Do they know what they're doing? I'm like, Yeah, they knew because he was that good. Like he you know, He's Bishop, unbelievable. Oh my God. So yeah, you have a goalie like that. So yeah, Tampa's my pick. Uh, Vegas wins, that'd be great too, because Cummins come was my jam before. And it's a good story too. Like they built good teams. You know, they've built anyone saying they circumvented the, the salary cap of Kucherov. Well, you gotta miss a whole season and you gotta just hop out of the wrapper and play games. And like he's been unbelievable. So I couldn't yeah. do that. I don't know if you could do that, but I sure as heck couldn't do that. Like I <laughs> took a season and a half just to be halfway decent, not anywhere near that level. So I mean, I, I, hopefully, I just like the hockey. I, I'm hoping for a good series and good hockey, and that's uh, that's what I'm cheering for. But yeah, Tampa's my pick. Cool. Okay, bye. How, how are they? Um, how are those two organizations with with the alumni aspect? That's uh, something that I found interesting. Do they treat you guys pretty good still, uh, Tampa or, or Colorado in that scenario? As you know, one being part of the team, mm-hmm. and but especially, I guess, being a part <clears throat> of a championship team. Yeah, I think. Uh, well, Colorado, like they, I haven't lived in Colorado for, you know, since I played there, but, you know, I've, I've gone back and gotten tickets and Tampa's been really good in the sense where, you know, there's tickets if you want to go. And then they had, we had the reunion, which was awesome. And they had all the guys in town and stuff. So, uh, you know, like Tampa, they've done a good job of taking care of, not taking care, but, you know, if you want to go to a game and bring your family, you know, you're welcome to and park wherever and like, you know, park in the back lot basically if you want. So. Tampa does a really good job. The color I can't speak to just because, you know, I haven't really been there in 20 years or whatever. But my old teammate Dave Reed reached out. He's like, yeah, hey, we got to get a reunion going for Colorado. I said, get on it, buddy, Reed. You're the perfect guy for organizing this stuff. He's like, I'm on it. We haven't done one in Dallas either. So, anyways, right. it's funny, like, how that works. So, okay, buddy. All right, man. Well, congrats on a great career. Congrats on the two cups. Um, awesome to share your story. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad we were able to get together. So, uh, yeah. thanks again for doing this, buddy. Oh, no problem. Anytime. Sorry about the uh, phone not working the odd time and beeping. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no worries. We'll figure it out. Thanks, man. Cheers. Talk to you. Thanks so much for listening to the end. I really appreciate your audience. I really appreciate the support. I've been getting many uh, touch points here through social media or through email um, saying, you know, geez, the podcast means a lot. We listen to every episode. Um, and and we have grown together either as a parent um, athlete scenario or athlete saying that you know they've, they've been able to use the tools um, to help them in their career so that's what it's all about to grow the message and to grow the idea that this is a real thing you know mindset is uh, it's strange because it's a bit of an intangible that is uh, uncertain and an unknown and especially for people who haven't played the sport so hockey parents out there who are listening who haven't gone through it don't maybe understand the value or even what I'm talking about and I for one as a player didn't get it until I was well into my pro career and found out even more about the value of it afterwards so junior as a junior athlete I really didn't understand what was available to me I didn't think that there was anything wrong in I in uh, you know air quotes uh, so if there was nothing wrong then why would I uh, do anything to, to make it right uh, this is definitely not a topic that is a right or wrong topic or you have it or you have not um, that you need to be broken in order to visit this stuff I was a victim of a fixed mindset in that scenario I was a victim of thinking 
uh, well, there's nothing really to get better here. I've, I've done great to date. Um, why would I? Why would I do anything? Why would I spend time on this? Uh, so, in even of that approach, my own stance as a 19, 20, 21 year old in the field of doing, uh, you know, personal work on the mind and mindset and approach and perspective, uh, I had a fixed mindset with that. It was like, you know, there's nothing wrong, so why would I try and get better? And that's the exact wrong wrong approach. So, if you are an athlete like I was that thought you had it all figured out. Um, I don't mean to be rude, but you're wrong. Um, you can always use more support. You can always use more development. And if you're an athlete who does have a hard time with anxiety or with negativity or with feeling like the victim or playing fearful and, and, and not finding these powerful states to play in, then this is a much more obvious dot to connect for you and something that you, sh- you should uh, be considering, you know, investing yourself, uh, investing time in and investing in yourself because it's going to make a massive difference for you on the ice um, and in all other aspects of, of, your, of your life. So... Uh, thanks again for Chris for coming out. Uh, what a great story. I love how he talks about the person behind the player. One of his most memorable moments was a coach for the first time. He said, hey, how you doing? Um, you know, like that he cared about Chris as a person. And, and that makes a massive difference. And developing that person makes a massive difference. So uh, if you are interested in working with me, if you are interested in what uh, mindset can do for your game or for your player's game, uh, your child's game, then please reach out www.myhockey.com. It's a great time of year to be doing this. Um, I'm recording this right now and uh, the end of June. We have July and August left before things really start heating up. And uh, although we obviously can work on things during the season, I'm a big advocate of starting to ingrain some of these concepts and some of these fundamentals now. Uh, so you can start applying them now. So once the season rolls and training camp hits and the pressure's on the line, that you can that you can use them. You can use them and you're able to use them and you're able to apply them uh, to help you move forward and to help you take advantage of opportunities. So uh, that can be available at upmyhockey.com. Again, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, uh, Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan on YouTube. That would be uh, appreciated. Or you can join the parent group if you haven't already. And uh, look forward to working with you all in the future. And once again, Dinger, thanks for coming out and sharing your story. Play hard. Keep your head up.